months ago when I preached I told you about my uncle Terry who had passed away this year and how he had was born with cerebral palsy and wasn't able to really function physically in the way that that most of us are used to and how years before he passed away he had he went ahead and had his tombstone marker put there and he had his name and the dates and everything on there but the one quote that he had on there was one day I will walk because he was never able to walk in this life, really. So he was looking forward to the time when he would be able to walk. But how did he know this? You know, and where will he walk? You know, most Americans in a, in a recent uh, poll believe in heaven and believe in hell. Though their definitions of those are not really biblical. But about 72% of people in the United States believe in heaven and about 58% believe in hell. And it's actually one of the common uh, questions that we use when we're trying to reach somebody for Jesus. If we, we say, if you were to die today, do you know if you would go to heaven or hell? And a lot of times our, our approach to salvation is focused on avoiding going to hell. You know, we say things like fire insurance or um, get right or get left. Uh, turn or burn. You know, those are things that people actually say and so we're, our focus is on hell, but what about heaven? Do we talk about heaven that much? Most Christians, most believers have a better picture of their retirement than they do of heaven because they can imagine their retirement. They, they have an idea of what that's going to look like. But we don't really imagine heaven that much. But what can we know about heaven prior to actually going there. What does the Bible tell us about heaven? I can't in a morning tell you everything that the Bible says about heaven. It's just too much. But I think we can hit on some important things. And I think some things that we get wrong a lot of times, or maybe we just assume. I know as I was preparing for this and I I did some reading, I realized it's like, wow, I really don't have a good picture of heaven in my head. But here's the first thing I want you to know about heaven. Heaven is real. You know, there's a lot of false beliefs about the afterlife, you know, whether it's reincarnation or that we'll be absorbed into some oneness that will no longer be individuals or um, that will cease to exist. We'll go into oblivion. We'll just, we're just gone. Um, But the afterlife does exist. Heaven and hell are described all throughout the Bible. One passage in Matthew 25, Jesus says, after he's kind of described these two groups of people, he says, these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So biblically, you can't believe in heaven and not believe in hell. It's the same word. Jesus uses the same exact word when he says eternal. When he says eternal punishment and eternal life, it's the same word. You know, I wrote a blog post about this uh, a while back because it was a question that kept coming up and um, we can... You can go to the website and find it uh, to really talk about the doctrine of hell. But that's not what we're here to talk about this morning. We're talking about heaven. So if heaven is real, you know, Jesus told us that he was going to prepare a place for us. 
and that He is the only way to get there. In John chapter 14, Jesus says this. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And our good friend Thomas said to, to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And then Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, Jesus is not just a guide that gets us to heaven. He, is, he makes the way and he literally is the way that we get to heaven. So heaven is real. Jesus has told us that. Heaven is also a place. And what I mean by that is that it occupies space and time. You know, in the passage we just read, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Your translation may have rooms or mansions. In Isaiah and also in the last couple of chapters of Revelation, the heaven is described as a city with streets and with walls, and with gates, and a river. Jesus described heaven as paradise. Those are all places. Those are all practical things. See, heaven is always described physically, as a physical place. There's no mention of spirits floating around through the clouds, playing harps. You know, that's kind of the the pop culture image we have of heaven, is uh, uh, little creatures floating around, or maybe we think that it's just a, a spirit thing. But the question that, that, that has been really debated since really we, we have the word here is that, is this literal? Is it actually describing a city with streets and walls and all that stuff? Or is it symbolic? If it's purely figurative, if it's, if it's not literal, if it's all symbolism, then that means we are largely ignorant about heaven. Because there's really no one who can say... They'll, there, I've even read some commentaries that will say... These things are symbolic, but we don't really know what they mean. Well, that's not terribly helpful. I believe it's literal. I believe for the most part that the things that we read about heaven, when it says a city, it'll be a city. When it says walls, it'll be walls. But I also think that these descriptions of heaven are, also, are literal, but they're also symbolic a lot of the times. You know, Think about Washington, D.C., I went there last year. I know some of y'all have been in the past few years. There are literal buildings. There are literal streets. But they're also highly symbolic. They're placed in certain places. There are structures there that mean things, that, that say certain things. Um, even if you, if you look at an overhead map, especially of how Washington, D.C. was originally laid out, there's a lot of symbolism in just the way the streets are. But they're also actual streets, so there can be symbolism even in the literal, physical things. Let me bring it down to size a little bit. My wedding ring, it's a real ring made out of gold, but it's symbolic of my marriage. It's literal and uh, symbolic. It's real and figurative. So heaven is a place, and we're going to have bodies. See, we were created as both spiritual and physical beings. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, 
God created our bodies and then he breathed our spirit into us. So we're created both as spiritual and physical beings. And so it doesn't make sense that heaven would be a purely spiritual place since God made us both physical and spiritual. But there's been this heresy that crept into the church early on. It really kind of came from the the thoughts of the philosopher Plato where everything physical is bad and everything spiritual is good. We even think about it. We even have this kind of built into us sometimes where we say if somebody does something goofy or whatever, it's like, man, well, that's not very spiritual of you. you know. And so we say that things to where it's like, well, spiritual is good and physical is bad. Well, hopefully with Halloween being tomorrow, it should remind us that not everything spiritual is good. But also not everything physical is bad. We can't misunderstand when the Bible talks about the flesh It's talking about our sin nature, not all physical things in general. We have to reject that heresy. God created the heavens and the earth and called it very good. He created the physical earth, the universe, the stars, and called it very good. So we can't think that just because something is physical that it's bad. We're going to have a resurrected body. And it's going to be a glorified body. It'll be like Jesus' body. Here's the cool thing about it, is that we'll be recognizable. You know, I don't know exactly how that'll work, but our physical bodies will be recognizable, but better than what we have now. We'll have a fully human experience. It'll be us the way God intended us to be. You see, when Jesus came up from the grave and he spent all that time with his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He was around people. People saw him. People touched him. And we can learn a lot about our resurrected bodies by Jesus' resurrected body. See, Jesus was physical. He even said, touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm I'm here. I'm really here. He ate. I don't think necessarily he was hungry, but he wanted to show that he was real. He ate. But there's also continuity. And what I mean by that is that he looked basically the same. They could look at him and go, that's Jesus. There were some differences there, but he was the same. And he even made a point to show them his scars. He showed them his scars. And so does that mean that some of the scars that we have in this life will carry over? Well, if Jesus' body is an example, maybe so. But he was also finite. And what I mean by that, he was in one place at one time. You know, God, we know God is ever-present everywhere, but Jesus in his physical body was in one place at one time. You know, and so if we look at those things, we can learn a good bit about what our bodies will be like in heaven. And just as a side note, this is, I don't think anybody necessarily believes that here, but we see it in pop culture a lot or just in our culture at large. When we die, we don't become angels, Okay. It's not the way it works. Uh, if you look in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, you can see that angels and humans are clearly different. And even in 1 Corinthians 6, we see that we as believers will judge angels. So we're separate and different now, and we will still be separate and different then. We'll have some similarities to them, but we don't become angels. Angels don't become people. It's not the way it works. 
So we'll have a physical place. We'll have physical bodies. But I think there'll also be time there. And we may not observe time in quite the same way that we do here, but I believe it's there. And I'm not just making, you know, saying I think that's a cool idea, but we actually see it in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 8, it says that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So there's making a reference to time. And even in Revelation 22, at the very end of Scripture, uh, it makes a reference to months in heaven. So it seems that there will be some sense of time when we're in heaven. It's not just going to be a nebulous kind of don't really know what's going on. You know the, the hymn, Amazing Grace, that, that we've, we've sung here many times and that we've sung forever. The last verse of that says, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That may be pretty accurate. We may be, we may still have that sense of like, wow, time has passed. We've still, we've done all this during this time, but there's still more out there. It will never run out. So heaven is real. Heaven is a place. And heaven is where God is. You know, and when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, uh, what we call it the Lord's Prayer is probably better understood as the model prayer. The first thing he says is, Our Father who is in heaven. So his Father is in heaven, and he acknowledges that. And in a passage we're going to look at in just a couple of weeks, when Stephen is stoned, uh, in Acts chapter 7, it says that he gazed intently into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So we see, as we look to heaven, we see God is in heaven. Jesus is standing there beside him. You know, and we we know that as believers that God dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. So we have, our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit. And God is also omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. But his throne is in heaven. That's where his, his center is. Sinner is probably not the best word for that. But that's where his throne is. We can know that God abides in heaven. So heaven is real. Heaven is a place. Heaven is where God is. And this is the one that may throw you for a little bit of a loop, but hear me out. We'll be all right. The present heaven is not where we will spend eternity. Let me, let me say it again, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. The present heaven is not where we will spend eternity. What do I mean by the present heaven? The present heaven is what Jesus referred to as paradise. When he was on the cross and the thief next to him you know, said, remember me, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He, he told him that. And that word paradise is, it means, is the same word that's used for a walled garden. So if that helps you give you a mental picture, it's a, it's a very well taken care of place. And that present heaven is where those loved ones who are believers, who've already passed on, that's where they are now. It's where the children that were never born are right now with Jesus. It's where those who were too young or mentally unable to understand their sin, it's where they are now with Jesus. So that's the present heaven. We don't know a whole lot about it, but it's pretty awesome because Jesus is there. And then, at some time in the future, we have what's generally called the Day of the Lord. 
I'm not going into detail on all that. We don't have time for that this morning. But that, when I say the day of the Lord, I'm referring to things like the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, the judgments that we read about in Scripture. All of those events will take place. But what about after that? After that, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So now we're going to look at Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, and the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jansith, 
the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practice abomination and lying will ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Pretty powerful picture. It's a big picture, but let's look at a few key things here. At the very beginning in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And so the question that, that comes for this is what does it mean by new heaven and new earth? And what does it mean by that the first earth and first heaven have passed away? You know, are we talking about something that is completely new? Are we talking about something that's restored? Is there some type of renewal of our current earth? Sin affected all of humanity, but it didn't just affect humanity. It affected the earth and the universe itself. And in Acts chapter 3, when, as we looked at a couple of months ago, when it talks about the restoration of, of all things, it's restoring it to a condition before the fall, before there was sin. You know, during the millennial reign, there will be some level of restoration, particularly of Jerusalem. But but it's not to the extent that we're talking about here. I'm going to flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3. It's just a, a little bit before Revelation. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3, says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Though, uh, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. It's referring to the flood, Noah's flood. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. So here, Peter makes this reference to Noah's flood. And we saw that we know that during Noah's flood that the earth was destroyed by water. But then God gave Noah a promise that said, I will never destroy the earth with uh, water again. Where we get our rainbow. It's, it's a uh, reminder of that promise. But he says in the same way or in a similar way, the earth now is being reserved for fire. And so most people understand that the next time that the earth is destroyed, it will not be by water, it will be by fire. But if it's like Noah's flood, this destruction by fire is one that brings about purification, not obliteration. It doesn't mean that the earth ceases to exist. It means that it's purified. In verse 5, uh, uh, back to Revelation chapter one or 21, in verse 5, it says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So what do we mean by new? It's referring to new as in quality. It's not necessarily making new things as in creation. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was created out of nothing. There was nothing, then there was something. That's not necessarily what he's talking about here. You know, just as we are made new creations, new creatures through Christ, the universe could be made new. When we're made a new creature, we're still who I am. When I became a believer, I was still Michael. I was still the son of my parents. I, you know, my physical appearance didn't change. Who I was on the inside changed. Who I was in relation to Christ changed. I was a new creation. And the same could be for our universe. Either way, whether everything that we know is wiped away and God creates something new, or if He takes what we already know and familiar with and purifies it through fire, our eternity will be in a place much like this earth, but without sin and without death. So the new heavens and the new earth are going to be new, but it's also going to be enormous. You get that in verse 16? Your, your translation may still have the, the original measurements in there. Mine went ahead and translated it to what we would be familiar with. So in verse 16, it says that the city is laid out like a square, and its length is as great as its width, and he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. So you get that? It's, the, it's basically a square, or it is a square. This length and its width are the same, and it says its height is also the same. That could mean that it's a giant cube. It could mean that its highest point reaches that high, like some type of tower or monument there. But it's huge. Do you, do you get how big 1,600 miles is? That means if you put this in the United States right now, it would reach from Mexico to Canada. It would cover more than half of the lower 48 states. And that's the city. You get that? That's enormous. And then you start, if you start like counting up levels of how tall it could be, the, the wall, when it's, it talks about the wall, it says it's like 70-something yards. That's how thick the wall is. So the wall is almost as thick as a football field is long, about three-quarters of the way. That's enormous. But then also, here's the other thing. In verse 24 of Revelation 21, it talks about the nations and the kings of the earth. 
it seems to indicate that there will be nations and lands outside of the city. So as if the city is not enough, there seems to be more outside of it. So this new heaven, this new earth, it's new, it's enormous, but God will, it's also where God will be with us. In verse 3 of chapter 21, he says, he says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And then at verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There was no need for a set place to worship because He was there with them. So we've had this, that heaven is real. Heaven is a place. Heaven is where God is. And this present heaven is not where we'll spend eternity. It will be in this new heaven. But heaven is also what we were made for. Heaven is what you were made for. Randy Alcorn in his book has this quote, says, We were made for a person and a place. We were made for a person, that's Jesus. And we were made for a place, that's heaven. When he says we're made for a person, we have to go back to creation. We have to remember that we were created for community. We were created to have community with God and also with others. That's why we were created. But then as believers, as the church, we're referred to as the bride of Christ. And we even see that reference here in verse 2 and in verse 9 where he makes these references that the city came down adorned like a bride. And then in verse 9 it says, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So in especially like 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ in other places as well. Now some people take this illustration or this relationship, I think, further than what Scripture intended it to. Some people use it as, an, uh, as a, an excuse to use overly romantic language in reference to our relationship with God. We see this in worship songs where you're not really sure, are you singing to God or to your girlfriend? Um, sometimes they take it way too far and have it as something that I don't think is what God intended. But how, what we have to see is that collectively, as believers, as the church, we are engaged to Christ. And we're in that engagement period now. But it's collective. We're not individually brides of Christ. We are collectively, as the church, the bride of Christ. Because if you're a guy, it's just weird to think of yourself as a bride. It's just, at least for most guys. Um, it, it is really difficult to think through that. But we have to look at it the way that uh, God intended it. So we're in this engagement period now. But we're looking forward to the future marriage supper of the Lamb that we see in Revelation 19. When... It will be consummated. And even, even in our culture today, consummated usually refers to what happens on the wedding night instead of the wedding day. Your marriage is consummated when you get married. You can't equate physical relations with uh, marriage. And it's not, and so when we see this marriage supper of the Lamb, that's when we're no longer engaged to Christ. We are actually married to Him. 
So we see that if we're made, we see how we're made for a person. We were created to be with God, and as the church, we're made to be uh, his bride. But we're also made for a place. And I think most humans recognize this, at least at some level. I think all of us at different points in our life have had a longing for home. If we're away from the place where we grew up for too long, we also often get uh, homesick. Especially I think about students who come to college for the first time. Some of them get really homesick and just have to. I I hear students outside of my office talking to their mom every day on the phone. I I probably went a month before I called my mom when I went to college. So people are different. But I think a lot of us have that desire for home. Even if home is not necessarily the place you grew up. But we also have other desires. Desires for relationship. Desire for community. I think probably the biggest one is that we desire, we desire to belong somewhere. We desire for people to be around us and know who we are and to understand us, to not think we're weird. That's what belonging is. Heaven will be familiar like going home in the best sense of the word of going home. In Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the roll call of faith, where the writer has talked about all these different greats from the Old Testament He offers this kind of summation here. He says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. They were seeking a country. It wasn't the one that they came from, and it wasn't even the land that they were moving to, that they were trying to get to, that God had promised them. It was something else. It wasn't an earthly country. It was a heavenly one. And in Philippians chapter 3, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We may be citizens of this country, or we may be citizens of other countries on the earth, but if we're a believer, our true citizenship is in heaven. Even if we, you know, and obviously we've never been there yet, but that's where our citizenship is, which is really reassuring uh, in our current election and politics and everything else. Um, It matters, but it ultimately doesn't matter. See, all of this will be a restoration of God's original plan for us. You know, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Look at what His plan for us was. It was that we would be in relationship with Him. Adam and Eve would be in relationship with each other. But He also gave them responsibility. He gave them stuff to do. All of that before the fall, before sin, they had responsibilities to care for the garden, to care for the earth. So here, we have this unspoken fear about heaven. You know what it is? We're afraid heaven is going to be one long church service. For a lot of us, that means boring. And as a person who helps lead on Sundays, I still feel that way sometimes. For many of us as kids, we were raised in churches and things just didn't connect with us. So we have this kind of 
fear that we, we don't even want to share with anybody. Heaven is just going to be one long church service. My rear end is going to hurt from sitting in the pew all day long. You know, those are the kind of things that we think. But think about that for a minute. If we think heaven is going to be boring, it really is that we think God is boring. And see, the problem is not God. You have to remember, He's the Creator. He created everything. There's no one more creative than God. Everything that exists came up in His mind first, and then He created it. So the problem is not with God. It's with us. Now, I confess, many churches are boring. But they're boring because their leaders and their members are boring. There's no passion. There's no sense of mission. They're not willing to take any risks. There's no creativity. So you get a bunch of people who, that's who they are, you put them together, that's going to be what their church are. Because you have to remember, churches are just groups of sinful people. You know, if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll make it not perfect anymore. Um, But it also tells us something about what we think about worship, what we think worship is. See, worship is more than what happens in this basement on a Sunday morning. I hope you realize that. Worship is more than singing and praying you know, and being taught by the Word. It's more than that. Romans chapter 12, we see that uh, we're supposed to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's our good and reasonable service or worship, depending on which translation you look at. So, Worship is more than those types of things. In heaven, we'll have stuff to do. And what I mean by that is that, you know, work existed before we became sinful. Now, work did get a lot harder, became painful after that, but work existed before the fall. And we even see in Scripture that we'll have responsibilities to rule in heaven. We'll have things we have to do. We'll have responsibility. But it won't all be work. Don't get me wrong. The Bible's pretty clear there will be food in heaven. There will be feast in heaven. Some of us are pretty happy about that. But, but don't miss this. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, He even says there's going to be laughter in heaven. Laughter. You, you get, it's sometimes, you know, even on a Sunday morning here, uh, before and after the service, if you just kind of like stand in the back, you'll hear people talking, but what you hear a lot of times is laughter. You get a group of people together, who enjoy each other and like each other, the most common sound is laughter. And I think heaven will be like that. We know that we see that laughter will be in heaven. Even even see in Isaiah and Zechariah that there'll be play in heaven. That's pretty awesome. Think of it like this. All these things are things that God created. Now, if you're a parent and you give your child something for them to enjoy and you see them enjoying that thing that you gave them, that gives you a lot of pleasure. You're like, wow, I gave this gift to my child. They're enjoying it. It's the same with your spouse. If you give your spouse some gift and you see them later on, like whether it's a a sweater or a scarf or a book, and you see them reading and they're like, wow, that was really good. You get fulfillment and enjoyment out of seeing them enjoy the thing that you gave them. How much more will God enjoy seeing us enjoy the things that he's made for us? All of that will be fulfilling and will give God pleasure. See, if we imagine heaven in the light of Scripture, 
Don't just start making stuff up. Make sure it agrees with what we see in Scripture. But if we imagine heaven in light of what we see in the Bible, there's a lot to get excited about. There really is. Now, we're humans. We may get some of the details wrong. I think God's okay with that. But He gave us these descriptions for a reason. You know, why would He tell us all this stuff about heaven if He didn't want us to know about it and to think about it? You have to think, is God's imagination less than ours? Do you think that the next earth, that the new heaven and the new earth will be less than this one or more? Can you imagine what it would be like without sin, without death, without all the fear that we're wrapped up in? If this life can have so much beauty, can have so much pleasure, so much fulfillment, how much more will the next one? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we read, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, if you stop there, you're like, well, we just can't know anything about heaven then because He said you, hadn't even, you can't even think of it. But that's not what... You've got to read the next verse. You know, Put that scripture back into context. The next verse says, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. See, we've never heard it. We've never seen it. We can't even come up with it. But God has revealed it to us. You know, if when you think about these things, it gives us hope. It gives us comfort. And it builds our anticipation for what's next. You know, last Sunday I asked if there were any questions about heaven that we could address. And I put it up on Facebook. I got one question. It was a little tongue-in-cheek, but we can talk about it in house fellowship maybe. But we got no questions. And I think part of that is because we just don't spend any time thinking about heaven. And so there's not really a lot of questions that we come up with because we just say, well, okay, I've got a lot of other stuff on my plate. I can't think about heaven right now. But the, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, Christian, meditate much on heaven. It will help thee to press on and to forget the toll of the way. This veil of tears is but the pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but the stepping stone to a world of bliss. Thinking on those things can help us get through the things we have to deal with in this life. You know, as a kid, I used to go to the kitchen looking for something even though I really didn't know what I wanted. Y'all's kids do that. They're just like, I want something. What do you want? I don't know. Do you do that as an adult? Yeah. 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 You go and just start rooting around the cabinets and refrigerator, hoping to find, what are you looking for? I don't know. But but even beyond food, our lives has these desires, these bigger things that we look for a way to fulfill. You know, even after that God-shaped hole that's in every person is filled, when we become a believer, there are still other God-given desires that are left unfilled. C.S. Lewis wrote, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And here's the thing, we were made for another world. We were made for a world that existed before the curse of sin and one that will exist after this world has been made new. And Jesus is the way back to there. Jesus is the way to that place. See, as for believers, after the passage I read from 2 Peter 3, after that, after he's talked about the new heavens and the new earth, Peter writes to them and says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord, of our Lord, as salvation. The passage from John 14 that I read earlier. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Virtually every major religion has some view of what happens after we die. And as a kid, I used to think, wouldn't it be cool if God just let whatever we believe actually be what happens to us? God doesn't work that way. Scripture is clear. There's one way, and it's Jesus. Jesus said in John 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He's the one way. He's the only way. Now, I spent this past week building a firewood shed. I posted a couple of pictures on Facebook. Um, It hasn't fallen over yet, so I guess I've done all right. Um, But I'm not really a very good carpenter. Um, I've done a couple little things. My dad was the carpenter, and many of my family, going back generations, were carpenters. Uh, My dad had a a toolkit of some tools that were over 100 years old where um, some of our ancestors made wagon wheels for for horse-drawn carriages and stuff like that. My grandfather was a carpenter, made cabinets that were just unbelievable. But I didn't, I didn't really pick up all those skills. I do all right, but I didn't pick them up. Um, but as I imagine heaven, I think about some of the stuff we may do there. And this is imagining. I don't know for sure. But I believe my dad was a believer. He confessed as much. Those who were around him, especially more than I was in the later years, agreed with that. So I believe my dad will be in heaven. I'll know who he is. But we may spend some time making stuff in heaven. I believe it's possible. I don't see anything in Scripture that prohibits it. Maybe we'll make some stuff for some of you. You might want a chair or a table or something like that. I don't know. Maybe. But if we imagine heaven and we compare it to what we see in Scripture, there's a lot of really cool stuff to think about. See, as I said earlier, we were made for a person, and that's Jesus. And we were made for a place, and that's heaven. <laughs>